Amen. Well, thank you, Doug. Good morning, City Light. I am excited to dig into Romans chapter 8 again with you all this morning. It is good to be back. I missed you last week. I wasn't here. I was at Northwestern College in Orange City uh, speaking at their campus ministry retreat. Believe it or not, that's where uh, the Hobbit thing first started because in college I couldn't grow a beard and I had long curly hair that hung below my collar and I looked a lot like Frodo when uh, that movie came out. Um, So that's where it started. It was actually more than 15 years ago that I was enrolled as a student at Northwestern and uh, going there, hanging out with the kids who are there now made me feel old, like really old. They were... um, They were, I think, intentionally trying to make me feel old at times. Like, they called my Northwestern gear retro. They uh, were going just as hard at midnight as they were at noon. And I was like, I got to go to bed. I'm out, you know? And then they asked me what music I liked from my generation, like Pink Floyd or Pearl Jam. And I was like, that is not my generation, okay? Uh, You're making me feel old. It was hard. I guess maybe being twice their age means I am old and I just got to deal with it. I don't know. Uh, My son, when I got back, saw a commercial for like just for men hair dye. And he's like, dad, you should get some of that. And I was like, what is going on? I guess maybe new season of life, right? But it wasn't all bad. I digress. It was not all bad. I got to do some fun things. I got to preach the gospel at chapel um, to a packed Christ chapel. There were probably close to a thousand people there. Super fun. I got to do three sessions talking to the campus ministry team, students who are devoted to making Christ known on campus. I got to talk to them about uh, what the Bible says about God's plan to multiply disciples and churches. And I got to spend just a lot of time with the students who are on the retreat. One thing that struck me while I was spending time with them was um, several asked me, man, student debt feels stressful. What was that like for you? Like, how long did it take you to pay off? All that kind of stuff. They pay twice as much a year as I did when I was there. They're taking on as much debt in one year that I did in all four when I was there. So I I gave them my number. And I got to let them know that actually just this past February, um, I paid my last payment on my student debt. That was really exciting to me. I don't know uh, if you guys have ever had that experience. Yeah, I mean, that was like, I, I made payments for 15 years on four years of college. Like every uh, Christmas when Sarah and I would get money, we just put it stored towards student loans. When we would get a tax return, we just put all that money towards student loans for 15 years. Like all of our extra money went toward that. And I told him, yeah, it was like debt is a burden, But when you make that last payment, it feels incredible, like really good. It was reason to celebrate, maybe even reason to shout, right? Have you guys ever heard of Dave Ramsey, like the personal finance guru? He loves helping people get debt free. And one thing he invites people to do when they pay off their last payment is to do the debt-free scream. I'm debt free, right? He compares it to Braveheart shouting, freedom, you know? like it's just debt is a burden and it feels so good to pay that off and leave it behind you. You guys know what that's like? I hope so. 
Because that's the kind of feeling that the Apostle Paul, the author of Romans 8, is tapping into in our passage today. We're dialing in on just two verses. This morning, I get excited to go deep into God's Word. We get to do that. Doug read them to you moments ago. But I want to read verse 12 again. This is what it says. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. This is a sentence that's jam-packed with good news. It begins, so then, brothers. Let me be clear from the outset. That word brothers there in the Greek has long been translated in the past brethren. It's like a community term today. It's often translated brothers and sisters. It means those who belong to the same people. So here in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, it's referencing the men and women in the church in Rome who believe in Jesus as their Savior and so have become brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul writes, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. If we rephrase that just a little bit, we get, we are not debtors to the flesh. We are not in debt to the flesh any longer. We owe no debt to our flesh. That deserves a scream of celebration more than paying off my student loans, okay? We are debt-free to the flesh. I don't know about you, I think this is the best news in Romans 8 since verse 1, where Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I don't know about you, we're tracking through Romans 8. We are soaking in the goodness of the gospel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we owe no debt to our flesh. Can you imagine? It is good news that keeps getting better. When you believe in Jesus, you are not condemned in your sin, and you owe no debt to the flesh. And I just want to say this morning that being debt-free from the flesh is a big deal. Why? Well, I don't want you to take my word for it. Let me remind you what Romans 8 has already told us about life in the flesh. Let's just do an overview. The flesh governs over us by the law of sin and death. It weakens our ability to live according to the law. It fails to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. The flesh sets our minds on the things of the flesh rather than the things of the spirit. And that setting the mind on the flesh is death to us. The flesh makes our minds hostile to God so that we do not and cannot submit to God's law. In the flesh, we cannot please God. When you are living in the flesh, the spirit of God does not dwell in you and you do not belong to God. The flesh makes our bodies dead because of sin. You see the themes that are happening in Romans 8? Either directly or by implication, every verse we've covered so far in Romans 8 tells us that living in the flesh or walking in the flesh or being governed by the flesh or setting our minds on the flesh is death to us. So let's explore that just a bit. When we talk about the flesh, we're not simply or exclusively talking about the skin suit that we all wear, okay? It's deeper than that. The flesh is like the center of desire, the center of 
passion, the center of drive inside each of us that controls us. It's the part of you that demands a response and insists that you act according to its will. There's a pastor named Ray Ortland who was helpful for me in kind of identifying the type of thoughts that indicate we are living by the flesh, that it's making demands on us. He says they're like, if I don't get my way in this situation, I'm out. If I never possess that thing that my heart so desires, I'll never be happy. If I don't get an apology from that person who hurt me, I'm going to explode. If you've ever had thoughts like that, you know they demand your action and response, right? What begins with that sort of a demand kind of grows and we think to ourselves, fight for yourself. Make that purchase. You deserve it. Force that conversation. Take what you deserve. Eventually, those demands end up feeling like debts. Again, Ray, Pastor Ray Ortland was helpful for me in, in connecting these dots. He wrote, we even have a duty to self ethic in our world today. He gives the example. I owe it to myself to follow my dream, to grow as a person, even if it costs me my marriage. A duty to self ethic. I think we could fill in the blanks of that statement with whatever way your particular flesh makes demands on you. I owe it to myself too, even if it costs me that. You see what happens when we use that kind of language? We indebt ourselves to the flesh. We act as though the flesh has some authority or some right over us that we are forced or required to comply with. What begins as desire grows into demands. And then those demands later mask themselves as debts. And then the debts require from us costs we never wanted to pay. I have a friend whose grandma always told him, sin will take you further than you want to go keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. It's a path that we're on where what begins as a desire turns into a debt, and we, we feel like our flesh owes something. The book of James summarizes it like this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's where it starts. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think the Bible here is teaching us a countercultural truth. Not all of your desires are good. Not all desires are good. Is that not countercultural? Like, I, I feel like in the world today, we think that we will be the most happy and we will live our best lives and we will be in the center of God's plan for us if and when all of our desires are fulfilled, right? We think to ourselves, real living is identifying and embracing and pursuing and indulging in whatever desires crop up in us. But man, the Bible says that's not true. In fact, it's, it's pretty close to the opposite of the truth that the Bible says. The Bible tells us that when we are ruled by our desires 
and the resulting deeds of the flesh, it leads to death because not all desires are good. Desires give birth to sin. Sin makes demands. Demands mask themselves as debts that require costs we never intended to pay. And the flesh kills us by demanding that we live according to its ways instead of God's ways. I thought I'd share what this looks like in my life. How I've wrestled with this over the last few weeks. Um, I think obvious temptations for sin exist in the world around us. We can be honest about that, like sex and pornography, money and influence, drunkenness, substance abuse. Those are all real opportunities to give in to the desires of the flesh. But I, I feel like there's a different sort of ongoing desire at work in me. I think it's more dangerous to me individually. This is just Eric sharing. It's more dangerous to me individually than those obvious desires. Um, for me, it's a low-key general pressure to prioritize things other than Jesus in my life. Do you ever feel that? It's a low-key draw away from Jesus. For example, when I get up in the morning, I wake up, um, and then I grab my phone and I read for a few minutes before I start the day. When I grab my phone, turn it on, which app do I open first? The news or the Bible. Honest confession, I often pick the news first. Now I'm going to tell you, that's not in and of itself sin. I'm not saying that in and of itself is bad, but if it creates in me a habit where I set my mind on the things that the flesh or the news says matters most today, Instead of setting my mind on what God says matters most today, that's a path toward death, is it not? It's just like this low-key pressure to get distant from my God. Or at the end of the day, at night, when I get home from a long day of work and uh, all my kids' activities, and I have a few minutes between putting them to bed and when I fall asleep, what do I do with that time? Those quiet moments. Do I... I go to God in prayer and thank him for grace getting me through the day and ask for his favor on me and my family, my church and my community the next day. Do I end with gratitude or do I just coast through those moments by pulling up Netflix and watching the next episode of whatever it is that I've been watching lately? I'm going to be honest again. I very often choose the easy way, the coast way. I choose to coast through life doing easier things instead of putting in the effort to invest in my relationship with Jesus. Why? What's going through my head? I think to myself things like, I deserve, it was a long day, I deserve a little R&R, right? I, it's like I owe this to myself. It's like I owe a debt to my flesh and the payment has become due. For me, the struggle with obvious sin is easy to identify and I've Put people in my life who hold me accountable to those things that are easy to see. But there is an underlying, ongoing pressure that pulls me away from Jesus. And honestly, often, I just, I feel like it's under the radar. I feel like it's invisible. I feel like it's not that big of a deal. 
But then I come to Romans chapter 8, and I see that is not invisible. And it is a big deal. Why? Because Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a big deal, isn't it? Like, this is life and death kind of stuff. And the death that it's talking about there isn't just the decay of our physical bodies. It's distance and separation from the one who gives us life. In other words, the point of Romans 8 here is not simply to turn bad sinners into good saints by changing our behavior. The goal is deeper than that. In Christ, when we are close to him, when we are found in him and he is in us, dead souls are given new life. When we are close to our Savior, dark hearts are changed by the light of the world. When Jesus is in you, sinners are freed from their shackles. When we are in him, debtors are released from their obligation to the flesh. The gospel is a life and death situation. And it's not just about changing your behavior. It's about being close to the one who got close to you. It's about believing in Jesus who came to save you from your sins so that you can have life with him forever. Friends, I don't know exactly what this looks like in your life, but the reality is if you are wearing flesh today, there is a center of desire and passion and drive within you that is making demands and claiming its debts and desires that even maybe began feeling harmless or inconsequential will eventually one day be lethal. That is life in the flesh, and that's why Romans 8, 12 is such good news. Can I say it to you again? So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. What good news. All right? So we're looking at Romans 8, chap, uh, chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. We're no longer indebted to the flesh. When it makes its demands, we can refuse payment. All right? That is good news. That brings us to the second part of our verses this morning. It's the practical part. I talked about Dave Ramsey earlier, the personal finance guru. Everybody who does his debt-free shout got there somehow. They have a story. Like they once had debts that they carried and now they've been set free. So it's not just like one day, boom, they get a shout. There was a process that happened. They put effort in. They actually walked the path to freedom. And, and Romans 8, verse 12 and 13, they kind of take us down a path. They show us how this works. And so I want to walk that with you. Verse 12 uses interesting language to tell us that we're no longer in debt to the flesh. I don't know if you caught it. Let me read it to you again. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. So Romans 8 verse 12 doesn't say, so, brothers and sisters, you're, you're not a debtor anymore. You are no longer in debt at all. No, it says, we are debtors, not to the flesh. It implies for us that then we actually are still in debt, just not to our flesh. 
Who then do we owe? That's the question. Well, in the context of the whole of Romans chapter 8, we see Paul contrasting life in the flesh and life in the spirit over and over and over again. So I think here in Romans 8 verse 12, what we get is an incomplete comparison that has an obvious but unstated second half. Track with me. It's like when we say, uh, when in Rome. Those three words by themselves don't really say much. But we use that phrase because when we say when in Rome, there is an obvious but unstated second half. You tracking? When I say when in Rome, we all think when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? And so I think this is what's happening in Romans chapter 8 verse 12. There's an obvious but unstated second half. Paul's been comparing the flesh and the spirit over and over and over again. So when we read this... We hear Paul, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And the obvious but unspoken second half is, but we're debtors to the spirit, to live according to the spirit. We can finish the comparison. We are in debt to the spirit because he gives us life. If we don't owe our debts to the flesh, who do we owe? It's the spirit that gives us life. If somebody's killing you and taking away your life, you don't owe them anything. If, if you don't owe your murderer any payments, that's absurd, right? But if you have a savior, that's different. If someone saves you and gives you life in a real way, you are indebted to them because every moment you live after that is one you would not have had without your savior. You track it. Like in a real life example, there's a pastor in the Sea family. He pastors Providence Church over in Omaha. His name's Andrew Rutten. Great guy. He's uh, uh, just a little bit younger than me. He's got a wife. He's got a family. Um, and just last a uh, couple years ago, he found out that his kidneys were failing. They were operating at just a tiny fraction of normal kidney function, and it was killing him. Like he was really sick. His wife was really scared. It was a really dark time. Death was really close. But all that changed when one of his friends got tested and found out that he was a match and could donate a kidney. And so that friend did that. He uh, had one of his vital organs removed so that he could give it to his friend and pastor, Andrew. Now today... Both Andrew and his donor friend are healthy. Like you would look at Andrew and you would never know how sick he was months ago. You would never know how scared his wife and kids were just months ago. You would never know how close he was to death just months ago. He is healthy and well. And today, Andrew could look at that friend and say, that man saved my life. If he would not have sacrificed for me, I would be dead. And in a real way, he owes his life to his donor, to the man who sacrificed to save him from the thing that was killing him. That's what Romans 8.12 is saying about us. God set us free from the flesh by sending Jesus, his son, to condemn sin in the flesh. So Jesus condemned the sin that was condemning us. He sentenced sin to death. And that means he set us free. We are no longer condemned in our sin or in debt to our flesh. 
Instead, we're joyfully indebted to our Savior. Now, I know in our world today, it just might not land all that great. Like, so you're telling me the Bible says I was in debt to this guy over here, and now being saved looks like I'm just in debt to this guy over here. I don't want to be in debt at all. How do I get free from all of it, right? I want, to, I want to live my life in total freedom. I don't want to go from one debt to another debt. I know that this can land kind of harsh. But if you feel that catch in your heart, as I describe it, if you can relate to that, can we just call it what it is? That is the flesh making its demands all over again. Like Doug said it well last week, in Romans 8, there is no neutral. We've seen already that you are governed either by the law of sin and death or by the law of the spirit of life. Your mind is set either on the flesh or on the spirit. And now we see that you will either live according to the flesh and die or you will live according to the spirit and live. There is no neutral. And so that means if you are not indebted to the flesh, you are indebted to the spirit For the glory of God and the good of his people. Being in debt to the spirit means you have been saved. You have been loved. You have been filled. You have been empowered to put aside, to lay aside the sin that was killing you. So debt to the spirit is a good thing. It's a life-giving thing. Look at how the Bible contrasts life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit. This is Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, of the, uh, the deeds of the body, you will live. And so I want to close with some thoughts on life in the Spirit. Okay? This put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, Romans 8.13, it gives us just that one mark of life in the Spirit. There's lots of other ones elsewhere in scripture, but today we get just one. What does it look like to live in the spirit? It is putting to death the deeds of the body. There's a a guy who wrote a book in 1656 called Mortification of Sin. His name was John Owen, and he like summarized this idea um, with this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Like just a classic kind of Puritan, passionate, (laughs) like, it it sounds intense, doesn't it? Like life in the spirit is putting to death the deeds of the body. Either you are killing sin or it is killing you. That sounds extreme, doesn't it? That's because it is extreme. (laughs) Like, let's just not, let's not try to soften that. This is extreme. Life and death are on the line. Either you put to death the deeds of your flesh and live or you live for the flesh and you die. There is no neutral, it's extreme. And so I wanna end, I wanna close with two ways that I think we can soften this extreme passion to kill the, the sin that's killing us. How do we soften this? Number one, I think we make allowances for certain sins. We just give space in our life for certain sins. I remember a friend of mine, his favorite thing to say was, I just don't feel convicted about that yet. So he's the kind of guy that would uh, make up nicknames, very uh, just good at finding nicknames for people. Um, And so one particular time, 
um, he made up a nickname that was pretty hurtful, like disrespectful, just mean, um, to a guy that kind of got picked on a lot. And I felt bad for that guy. And so I went and talked to my friend who made up this nickname. And I was like, bro, you can't do that. That really hurt him. Like, if that sticks, he's going to suffer because of that. And my buddy was like, yeah, but it was really funny. <laughs> like, I don't want to stop making up nicknames. I just don't feel convicted about that yet. He decided to make an allowance for sin because he thought it was funny. I don't know about you, but I think we can do the same sort of thing in different ways. Maybe the thoughts in your head sound like, Jesus will forgive me for this, so I'll do it anyway. We make allowances. This doesn't hurt anyone but me, so it's really not that big of a deal. We make allowances. I'm following God in so many areas of my life. I've made so much progress. Do I really have to put sin to death there too? Think finances, sexuality, community, politics. Making allowances for sin is not killing it. It's believing that your flesh has a, a better plan for you than your Savior does. Friends, let's put in the effort not soften the work of the Spirit and put sin to death. Number one, ways we soften the extreme call to action of Romans 8.13, we make allowances for sin. Number two, we believe that killing sin is killing us. Say it another way, we convince ourselves that killing our sin will kill us too. Like, I worked in Omaha before we planted this church, and I managed a small IT department. And uh, we were just about to do a big software release. It was a big deal. It was high stress for my team of developers um, and me and, honestly, the company, because if it went south, we were in trouble. And so big release, high stress, and the CEO had just hired uh, a new process manager. And so uh, uh, in the same week, this new process manager got hired, and, and her first introduction to my IT team was at the last meeting before the big release. Just final details, everything is in place. And the, uh, the first impression did not go well. Like she strolled in and she questioned all of our processes. She criticized our intelligence. And she demanded that we make a whole bunch of changes before the release that was happening in literal minutes after the meeting. It was high stress and did not go well. A few days later, the CEO set up a debrief with me and the process manager and the CEO. So we got to the room and the CEO told this new manager that uh, she had been condescending and rude and that that is not the way to build respect with a new team. To my amazement, that process manager who had been so bold and brash um, in the last meeting I had with her broke down in tears in this one. She said she knew that the meeting didn't go well. She tried to call her behavior intensity and directness and put like a happy spin on it, but she knew she was just simply rude and mean. 
And so she started talking to us about that and said in her former jobs, she'd felt like she had to be that way or nobody would ever take her seriously. She didn't like who she'd become because it made people not like her, but she didn't know how to change. And honestly, she didn't know if she wanted to change because changing that part of her felt like unleashing her from the identity that she had carried for so long. If she wasn't that kind of a person, she didn't know who she would be. And so she just struggled through tears. I know I, there's part of me that wants to change, but I don't know if I can change. Anybody know what that feels like? Like sometimes we become so comfortable with our flesh that it becomes our identity. Maybe it's anger. I'm just an angry person. That's how I do. I've got a short fuse. Maybe it's sexuality. My sexuality just defines me more than anything else does. And so I have to live into that. Maybe it's laziness or workaholism. That's just who I am. I don't get much done or I cannot stop getting stuff done. It's just who I am. I don't know who I would be if I wasn't that. Maybe it's gossip. I cannot tame my tongue. I don't know how I would live or how I'd fill my time if I didn't have those kinds of conversations with those people. Maybe it's like you're like the process manager and it's just harsh criticism or a sharp tongue. And if I don't communicate that way, how would I communicate? There are all kinds of examples of sins that we can weave into our identity so deeply that we struggle to distinguish what sin is and who we are. Even when we see the flesh at work inside us and desire change, it can feel like if we have to put that thing to death, it might kill us too. And so we soften Romans 8.13 and say, maybe I just won't kill that one. The good news this morning is that Romans 8 has a better word than what the world tells us. We do not have to make allowances for our sins especially the ones that are hard to let go of. And we don't have to fear that killing our sinful flesh will kill us too because Romans 8 says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a promise of God. If you kill those things, you will live. If you let them live, you will die. Actually, the extreme nature of Romans 8.13 gives us great hope. It is a path to life. Killing sin leads to life. And we see it in the person of Jesus who bore our sins in his body on the cross and died And though he died, he lives again to tell the story, free from the sin that he carried to the cross. Amen? We see it in Jesus. And so in Romans 8, 13, we're not called to walk any other path than what Jesus walked for us. Killing sin is putting to death the deeds of the body. It's embracing the work of the Holy Spirit in you so that you can stop dying and start living. It's hope to see God's kingdom come and his will be done in your heart as it is in heaven. It's hungering and thirsting for righteousness so much so that you don't even have a taste for those sins in your mouth anymore. It's laying aside everything that hinders so that you can run with and for Jesus life and light and freedom. It's laying a hold of the freedom that you were set free for. The good news of Romans 8 says that those who are in Christ are no longer 
condemned in their sin or indebted to their flesh. Christian, brother and sister in Christ, you owe the flesh nothing. So let's give it nothing. Amen? Will you guys pray with me? Awesome God. I thank you for Romans 8 verses 12 and 13. And honestly, I thank you that they're kind of intense because for a kind of laid back, go with the flow guy like myself, I need a call to action like this. I need a truth that's desirable like this, that we are not indebted to the flesh, that that's been exposed. It's just a mask. It's a facade. In Christ, we don't owe our flesh anything. I need that sort of hopeful truth. And I need a call to action that's extreme, that calls me something, calls me to something I couldn't do on my own. And so God, I thank you that you've given us the spirit and that it's by the spirit that we put the deeds of the body to death. And so maybe right now, as you're just sitting in your chair, doing business with Jesus, reflect for a moment, when is the last time that you put to death a sin in you? When's the last time that you felt that freedom and wanted to scream, I'm free? Man, if, if God has done that in you and for you, would you just praise him this morning? Thank him, give him glory, give him honor. And then let's just not be passive on this one. This morning, would you ask the spirit, what sin do you desire to put to death in me right now? What, is, what deeds of the body am I making allowances for that need to die? Where is my flesh controlling me and demanding payment where I just need to refuse? I'm not paying that anymore. Spirit of God, would you work in us so that we can lay hold of the freedom for which Jesus has set us free? God, I thank you that being in debt to the flesh is no longer who we are, but being in debt to the spirit is our life. It's our identity. Would you give us joy today as we walk in the spirit, set our minds on the spirit, enjoy being governed by the law of the spirit of life? Oh God, would you do in us what we could not do without you? Set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.